Welcome to the What Origin Podcast. You can find out more at whatorigin.com. We explore the origins of creativity and how those manifest in individuals. Today we'll be talking about community, corporate culture, and how to live an independent life when you leave the rat race. I'm here with Sahar Masachi. He bounces between the world of tech, politics, and social enterprise, and you can find out more at sahar.io. Really too much to cover, but there's a lot of information and a great blog there. So thank you so much for joining me, especially in these times. It's good to have someone to talk to. So yeah, Sahar, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Gavin. I'd love to. Uh, One of my favorite things to do is answering questions, especially about myself. I was born to parents in Israel who were fleeing or who had fled revolutionary Iran for their lives. And I moved to Rochester, New York when I was two years old. I have two younger sisters and I had a very specific experience in college around sort of Katrina, Iraq, the Bush administration that got me involved in caring about the world in a now, here and now way, as opposed to a historical way. I, in college, my friends were when they finally realized that I was a computer science major, were very confused because I had a public persona of being organizer and activist on campus. And I really thought that when I grew up, I was going to be a like, you know, professional politics person, not in like a DC way, but in like a movement way. And then I had a lot of adventures and uh, I co-founded a couple startups and got my master's in computers and went on to work for Wikipedia and a bunch of other stuff and ended up working on democracy protection, election integrity, and civics at Facebook. And so that was a wild ride. I constantly try and figure out what to do about, am I a tech person? Am I like a writing ideas person? Am I like a getting into, you know, politics person? And I don't think I've really figured that out. Other things about me that I think are really important are I am a Jew and I take that incredibly seriously. And I think that pretty much my entire life has been the search to figure out what to do with that knowledge. I am dating someone that I have had a crush on since the third grade. And we've been living together for almost a year now. I really like bicycles and trees and games. And when I was young, I would just read books all the time. What are your thoughts on building a sustainable community? I know it's definitely of interest in these times, but what do you think makes a good community? Thanks for the question. It's a lot to say. First thing I would start with is that people who try and create community often end up creating an organization. And an organization is not a community. They're by definition two different things. An organization has structure, it's clear who's in and out, or uh, it has forms, it has resources, and it has often a purpose. A community is a network of people uh, with a shared story and um, maybe shared interests. And what I found is that you will see someone who says they're building a community or building a movement, one of these highfalutin words, but really what ends up happening is they're trying to get people to join their thing. And so I think The first lesson there is if you want to build a community, it can't also be the show that's all about you. Uh, And I know that I have fallen prey to that trap many times. Another thing I've seen is uh, 
we think a lot about how to build community from this almost intellectual perspective. How do we build a community when we were in high school? It just kind of happened. Or did it? It's kind of interesting. I think um, there are structures and channels that make community an emergent property or something that's a lot easier to happen. And those things are, using the high school example, if not physical proximity, just sort of like a, a sense of, I see you on the regular, even if we don't actually have a conversation every time. There are institutions or events that are generally sort of like known to everyone. So you have a topic of conversation. There's uh, channels for small group behavior. If you took thousand people and put them in an auditorium, that wouldn't necessarily be a very good community. It also wouldn't be a very good conversation. But if you put them all into classrooms of 20 people and uh, maybe had them over the course of a year work on little small projects with each other, you start building up those those actual bonds. So that's the zoomed out level. From a more tactical level, I think it's if you want to jumpstart a community, it's good to figure out what's the glue binding people together and figure out what that is. It could be a shared experience. It could be a shared interest uh, in the sense of we all enjoy this video game. Or it could be a shared interest in the more like Marxian economic, you know, interest. I think that just might scratch the surface of answering your question. But I wonder if that makes sense and what you make of that. Yeah, that makes sense. I wonder what you think about the difference between intentional and non-intentional communities. Communities can have projects. Uh, like, uh, let's build the next version of Python, let's say. Or um, let's us in NoiseBridge create this hackerspace and keep it going. Uh, and those projects are really important. The way I'd put it is the project draws from the community. Community isn't necessarily the same thing in the same way that you could hang out at NoiseBridge and never really help, but maybe do, like, spend enough time to be part of the community. I think um, projects are really useful. They're a good way to get people working together. I remember when I was in college, for a while, I forgot how to hang out with people if we weren't working on a project together. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Uh, it was a weird way to be. I kind of felt like um, the metaphor I used a little bit later was I am growing into this tree, but I have to go do this thing. So I'm going to chop down this tree into just a spear so that I have a tool uh, to go do the thing more intentionally. And that's sort of the, the dark side where all community becomes the means to the end and the end is the project. I think the way that communities and projects interrelate is that building a community is sort of like digging a well. And hopefully you want to dig your well before you draw from it, right? It's setting up potential power and potential resources. Once you're ready, you can start drawing from it. Unfortunately, uh, like you said, or ultimately, like you said, people want to uh, join a cause or like have a sense of why am I here? So there's always this delicate dance of giving people a sense of what is this all about and giving them a sense of a, like a mission and a vision, while at the same time, keeping it loose enough that they don't have to jump in wholeheartedly right away, devote, you know, X number of hours per week or they're out. And the communities that I've seen that work really well often had sort of like a like an experiential, ritualistic bonding time. There's a reason why retreats are such a big deal. So re there's a reason why youth groups always have 
you know, summer camps and so forth, you have this amazing experience. You feel so strongly about it that you're motivated to keep working for months, just sort of to honor that memory of that experience and to feel the thrill of who you were when you had that singing in front of a campfire under the stars with the person next like next to you. And that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I think kind of what you're talking is about is a little bit like hopium, like uh, what what people live on for, for, for companies is is this, it's really a good thing, but if you don't accomplish it, you know, you're super let down. So you build yourself up, build yourself up. Um, and I've seen that. And, and so kind of maybe what you're talking about is with the community, if they don't reach that end goal, they don't build the spear, kind of the, the one thing, they feel like, well, I can't do the next. So, so I, I, I kind of understand that. But I was, I was going to ask, because you spent a number of years in tech in Silicon Valley and various companies, what is, what is community like in an organization? Like, do they, do they have community or is it just build this? Great question. I've been in a few different, you know, situations, all very different, honestly. Without naming names, maybe we could go over some examples. We're having a friendly conversation here. We're not <laughs> trying to bag, and, you know, Sahar has experience. We're not trying to bag anyone. I think it's more just, you know, different strokes for different folks. Anyways, companies are companies, so... Yeah, I think one of the reasons that startups have this mystique and work so well for some things is that there's this level of sense of you're more than means to an end, you're an end to yourself. That is to say, you, the person I'm working with, we have a relationship, we have some trust, and I feel like you see me as a human being and I see you as a human being, as opposed to, you know, this guy who won't do this project fast enough. One of the many reasons that perhaps they're so special. As I've been in an example where the company dramatically increased staff and tried to keep the same sort of ethos alive. And they did a few things that were pretty interesting. Uh, one thing they did was spend a lot of resources on internal culture building in terms of art. So for example, everyone got a uh, wooden crate with the logo of not the logo of the company, but sort of a stylized artistic, you know, thing that included the logo of the company. And it said like, as if it was a, a sleepaway camp. Or um, there was this ritual around, you know, the end of the month sales. And everyone in the company really cared about, like, what were we going to make our sales target? There was like, you know, the, the, the gathering up at the whiteboard and like, you know, almost like a football game. And that felt really interesting. It could also be very powerful in a neutral way. It could be used for good or for ill. Uh, and that was kind of, you know, non-two-person in a, in a WeWork startup. Uh, another place I've been, you know, if you're in a really large organization, organizational distance really matters. Uh, you can imagine sort of like feeling a sort of shock when you hear like, oh, I didn't realize we hired anyone to do that. Like, I didn't realize that this job function existed. I didn't realize that anyone in the company was working on this project. And that leads to weird tribalisms, because I don't think people can think of themselves in a community with 20,000 other people in the same way they can with 50. When that happens, you start seeing sort of factions emerge, and you could say, like, am I culturally closer to this division or this division? This will color my interactions with them. Uh, you see the like language of friends maybe be thrown around more casually of like we're friends with them, we're friends with them. And I think one of the big things about growing a company is like figuring out how to stay 
uh, one cohesive community for as long as you can without uh, deluding yourself into th- thinking that you've pulled it off, but you haven't, and then you get all the infighting and the office politics. What do you think about the candy-coated image corporations put out, sort of marketing and branding, where everything is great, but internally it's just like society. Things are up and down, and there's all of the issues and problems that we see in our own communities. Corporations are not, they're composed of people, but they're not people. And there are a lot of jobs whose primary function is to put a human face on what's ultimately this like terrible machine, right? Like your boss exists in part so that when you are cajoled to like produce more, you know, it's a person you have a relationship cajoling you and not like this spreadsheet that wants better numbers. And I think there's this like heartbreak that a lot of people in our generation, maybe other generations have uh, felt when you first like realize in your gut that this company is lying to you. I think that uh, the metaphor of dating works surprisingly well. Don't fall in love with the company. They cannot love you back. Don't sacrifice so much for your company because they will dump you in a heartbeat. It's tough because I even, you know, after this happened a couple times for me, I thought I had this hard bitten cynical mindset. I still felt really upset and betrayed uh, the time I realized that company X was lying to the world, like put out numbers that I knew were false or said something was true, which was obviously not true. I think it's just a good reminder that uh, companies are machines. They're not people. There is a metaphor I want to share. Yes. If that's yes. okay. Imagine a transistor, right? All computers are, to some varying extent, like a, you know, a big box of transistors wired together. You know, it's a box with wires coming in and one wire coming out and a very simple, like, instruction of when electricity comes to these wires, perform this task and output a signal. But if you arrange them the right way, you get artificial intelligence. You get a thing with uh, desires that are just wholly separate from the transistors it's made of. And in the same way, like what is a company? It's people sitting in cubicles, taking in streams of paper and information, making a decision about what to do with that information, and then outputting some more streams of paper. And if you arrange them correctly, you get a company with uh, desires wholly separate from the people inside. And yeah, a person has more latitude than a transistor, right? They're, they're, uh, not complete automatons. But if you stray too far outside of what your job is, you get fired. And, uh, this is true even for the CEO, right? Like the CEO does things that the, like too far out of their lane, they get booted out. And that's what I mean when I say that companies are like alien artificial intelligences, not in the sense of, they're made of computers, but in the sense that like even in the 1700s, companies were AI uh, in a really like deep and true sense. So, I mean, as you have said, you're, uh, you're fun employed. Um, mm-hmm. How do you, once you get out of that, be your own boss? Do it. Yeah. Uh, there's an old line from, I don't know, it must be the 1910s about like, you can't ask a man to be live in a democracy one day out of the year to vote. And be a surf, you know, 364 days out of the year working in a factory. I think that's not necessarily inherent to people, but I do think that we're building a culture of 
people don't really have the experience of being free and they haven't, many people haven't experienced it for longer than, you know, a week in their lives, if that. And what I'm trying to do now, you could say, like, I don't know, I listened to uh, Team Human. I don't know if you know that podcast. And they would use conver- uh, words like deprogramming. I don't know. That might sound a little pretentious. But uh, I think the way to deal with it is wake up every day and experience not having your self-worth tied to your productivity. And you go through withdrawal. You spend, I, I spent weeks, maybe months, just trying to like shove chores down in the hole in my chest where work used to be and structure my day with like, I have to write all these emails and, you know, do these life chores and, and uh, get a new glasses prescription, stuff like that. As you chew through that, I think that it takes a while for your body to sort of get out of that mode. And then I think you go through a mode of just like uh, finally being allowed to sleep, video games, books, just real like anti-productive work. I think the third phase is where you start to remember that you can produce for yourself. And, you know, I think this is what people mean when they say make art. It's not art as in make something pleasing to the eye or, you know, painting. It's more make things because you want to make the thing and the, the thing is the reason you do it, not make things as a means to an end. I think when you start making art in that sense is a, a big step towards recovery from uh, being trained to be uh, a surf. So how do you create a value system where you feel you feel good about what you're doing day to day and maybe you're actually making some income, but you're the you're the you're the one in the driver's seat. You know, you're the saying what to do. Oh man, Gavin, that's the question. That's the big one. Uh, let me take it uh, maybe a little bit step by step and then synthesize it together. We have technology for thinking about what it means to be human. And that technology is the humanities. And luckily, we have these uh, collected thoughts of people to just help us remember what it is to be human and maybe expand our idea of what it is to be human and in doing so help us live better lives. As a science tech person, it took me a while to just understand the point of literature beyond, you know, cool stories. And I think that's it. And it takes, often it takes a shock. I remember there was a time in which I thought I had cancer. I was around 20 years old. I was at my parents' house. In that time, I could not do anything except sit on the couch and watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, just fixedly, uh, just to distract myself as much as I could from my own mortality. Over time, you know, these thoughts would come in, these like little whispering thoughts desperately as I was trying to wall them out, they like slithered in and they'd say things like, well, what have you accomplished? And what if you died in a year? And Would anyone remember you? Why do you care? I think those times are helpful. I think that you could say that we're going through a little bit of a micro apocalypse right now. And apocalypse, of course, means the unlifting of the veil. I think that our science fiction art that we consume, our movies, often talk about the, uh, the worries that we have as a society. And I think that a lot of the allure of you know, the last 20 years of post-apocalyptic fiction is what happens after the unlifting of the veil? How will we act differently? How will we change our values? So pandemic, wrenching yourself away from a job, thought, uh, thinking you're going to die, thinking 
like I had I had this time when I thought my mom was going to die. Similarly, about a year ago, those help get you in the right frame of mind to rethink things, reshaping your value system. Anything that comes from literature, both you know high literature and just movies and just consuming like the stories that we tell ourselves about what it means to live. Uh, I think it means trying to find the compass you have inside your body that says, this is fun and nice and I want more of it. Uh, and distinguishing it from the compass that says, this is productive or the compass that says, this is nice and enjoyable in a sort of like ice cream, empty calories way. And I think it means just distance, like time really helps. Once you're, once you've done those two things, there's the question of what do you actually do, right? Like, how do you put this into practice? And there are a lot of answers. I think that a macro level answer is stop working for top down, like feudalist organizations. Maybe that means working for a co-op. Maybe that means, uh, having a different relationship with them as like a contractor or a small business where you're still like under the thumb. Like if you are a, a small business of two people, and you have like one big customer, you're still kind of an employee of that customer, but you have like some distance, you have some freedom. And I think a lot of it is just unionizing, like building a structure for democracy in the workplace such that you have the ability to uh, have an effect on your surroundings and not be a passive like observer or consumer of them. Maybe like getting involved politically in general is good for the soul in the same way where you feel like you have agency over your life. On a micro level, I think that means, yes, think about what's important to you now. And often having a job that like gives you the resources you need matters. But having had the conversation about what you want holistically from your life and sort of like writing it down and deep seating, like rooting it in your body means that in two years, in five years, in six months, when you have to make a choice, that's meaningful, you'll be able to make a choice from the frame of mind you are in in this pause time of uh, what do I want for my life? Why is life worth living? And not from the perspective of, you know, productive time of, you know, what's the best sort of like thing to do as accepted by the prevailing conventional wisdom of the society I'm in. And I have developed a framework to help with that. I realize that is a lot. <laughs> what is a what is a project you're doing now? Because obviously we've we've talked a lot about motivation, how to get yourself motivated. But uh, for you, what what are you doing? It's like choosing between your children, Gavin. Uh, mm-hmm. I love them all equally, but if I had to choose, uh, maybe these two. I looked around my house when I decided I would start this journey. I said, I have all these books on my bookshelf. Uh, I'm going to, you know not work until I have uh, read these books, these 300 books. Haven't done that yet. I've read a few, but not nearly as many as I should have. And so uh, I also also realized like I, part of the problem with reading books is that you read it and you want to talk to someone about it. So I found a book club with my friends. We're going over big, important works that like are both relevant to right now, but also relevant to, you know, timeless and relevant to whenever started off with um, a cheeky little book called uh, Politics is for Power to sort of poke fun at how we were um, doing the sort of dilettante, like fake politics thing that the book says is not good. And we had a fun time discussing that. Uh, and now we're reading David Graeber's Debt. Other books on tap are uh, Dancing in the Streets by Barbara Ehrenreich about the politics of joy, 
Goliath by Matt Stoller. I want to read uh, Darkness at Noon and The Romance of American Communism, uh, Piketty's Capital. That's going to be great. The other thing I'm excited about is I'm running a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. And it's probably the thing that takes the most of my time every week and the thing that is the most, you know, unproductive. And it's the thing that's the most fun. I have a great group of characters. Uh, my players surprise me every, every time we play. And it's a, a great exercise in thinking really hard and really quickly, uh, really hard to build up the world and really quickly as they're interacting with it in a way that, you know, can't hurt you. Uh, I really think that we're creating just a thing of beauty and ephemerality together. Thank you for listening to the What Origin podcast. Find more episodes and information at whatorigin.com and find out more about Sahar at sahar.io.